Happy June, listeners. June is Pride Month, and by popular demand by you, we are celebrating that right here on the pod. For the next four weeks, you can expect to hear incredible conversations with book-loving guests from the LGBTQIA community. On each of these episodes, my guests and I will chat about a story that made a significant impression, sometimes good, sometimes bad, on them in their younger years. I can't wait to share these interviews with you. On episode 98, we are kicking off Pride Month 2020 with a conversation about J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Yes, you probably know it best as a 1953 animated Disney movie featuring a boy in a funky green costume and a sparkly fairy named Tinkerbell. But today, we are going all the way back to the source material. The story first appeared in book form in 1911, and I'll just let you know right now, it doesn't look anything like the Disney version. On today's episode, we dig into Peter Pan's rich publishing and adaptation history. There is a lot to discuss on that subject alone, and oh so much more to unpack beyond that. We are discussing dog nannies, the murderous book version of Tinkerbell, the fetishization of indigenous people, and the pros and cons of staying young forever. We also spend a lot of time talking about the way Peter Pan lays out extremely narrow visions of what it means to be a boy, a girl, a man, or a woman, and how those heavy-handed messages affect J.M. Barry's characters. You'll hear me talk way too much about the VHS tape we had when I was a kid of a live staging of the Peter Pan musical in London. I watched it about a million times, which will become painfully obvious very shortly. Oh, and a final hot take. Peter Pan the character, at least the Peter Pan character that we meet in the book, kind of sucks. Don't get mad at me for saying so, because you might just agree with me when you get better acquainted with him. Joining me for this truly wild ride is my longtime Twitter friend and fellow kidlit enthusiast, Bryce Kelly. Bryce is the co-host of the Percy Jackson podcast, Camp Radio Half-Blood, and the former co-host of the Lemony Snicket podcast, Unfortunate Associates. They study children's literature as an undergrad at Bard College and regretfully know too much about Roald Dahl. Bryce is queer and non-binary and uses they-them pronouns. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at bkellygorman and on Tumblr at twinpoetry.tumblr.com. Their podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts and most other podcatchers. I'll include links to them in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 98. If you want to support Bryce's current endeavors, you can check out their Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash radiocamphalfblood. If you love the SSR podcast, there is, of course, also the option to support the show on our Patreon page. All the details are available at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or when you click support at www.ssrpodcast.com. Patreon allows you to support independent creators like me with a few dollars every month, as little as just $1, actually, in exchange for some very cool rewards, plus the knowledge that you're playing a key role in making your favorite content happen. SSR patrons get rewards like merch, newsletters, on-demand book recommendations, bonus episodes, exclusive voice notes, and more. Thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every patron tuning in now. Your support is absolutely essential to the show, and I can't express my gratitude enough, but I'll keep trying with these rewards. You can support SSR in other ways too. Start by leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes, which will help the show rank higher in Apple's search engines. This makes it easier for more potential listeners to find it. Spread the SSR love within your own personal network by posting about the pod on social media. Instagram stories are a great way to do it. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it. Yes, like right now. Then post it to your story, tagging at SSRpod so I can see it. I'd also love to know what you're doing while you listen. If Instagram stories aren't really your thing, I'd still love to have you join me on social media. You can follow along with SSR on Instagram and Twitter at SSRpod and by searching the SSR podcast on Facebook. And don't forget to check out SSR swag. You can shop bookmarks, stickers, tote bags, and t-shirts at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. Your purchases support the show. While I love to see you supporting the show, I also love having the opportunity to mobilize our whole SSR community to support independent bookstores. In these strange times, they need our love more than ever. Luckily for us, Libra FM offers one more way to show that love to our favorite bookstores by buying audiobooks. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community and small business. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libra.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted to take advantage of that deal and love on the indie bookseller community. Now let's go to the show. 
Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Bryce. Welcome to SSR. Hi. This is, I, I feel like this is a long time coming. I know. Bryce and I have been in touch via Twitter for a long time. And I don't have a lot of Twitter friends, but you reached out to me very early on when I launched the show, and we've had some awesome conversations about Kidlet, and you've given me some great ideas about inclusivity and how to bring a better diversity of guests on, and I'm thrilled to have you on the show in general, and also to have you on the show for our first ever episode of our first ever SSR Pride Month, and I feel like there should be a round of applause yeah, coming right now or something. A, a drum roll or something. Wow, that's like such an honor in a way. Um, yeah, so I will get into what book I picked, I guess, but it's we were talking off mic how it started as a Pride Month reason, and it ended up just being like, this is a very strange book that goes in all sorts of directions that are maybe not gender related, but certainly are interesting to unpack. Yeah. I feel like this book almost, we could have found a home for it in almost any theme month um, because there's just really (laughs) something for everyone and something for everyone to love and something for everyone to hate. hate. Uh, So we're just going to unpack it. I know we both have a lot of feelings. My notes are a little different than usual because I just... I really wasn't sure where to begin, but let's just go for it. So we're talking about Peter Pan, the history of which is a little bit confusing. Um, I'm still trying to kind of wade my way through it mentally. The character Peter Pan started in an adult novel written by J.M. Barry in the late 19th century, um, was then sort of plucked out of that novel and printed as like a set of articles by the publisher. And then it became a play and then it became a different play. And then it became a novel, which was published in 1911. And then there was, you know, there's a silent film, I think. And then, of course, there's the Disney movie and then Hook. And and like, yeah, we could go on. Yeah. Which is even weirder is that the musical was made really close together with the Disney movie, but they're not at all the same. Like, they don't have any of the same songs or anything. They're just like, yeah, there's a lot to to unpack as far as like Peter Pan lore. Um, I actually was in some ways shocked how much the book followed my general like idea of what happens in Peter Pan. Maybe that was because I was sort of remembering what I read as a kid. Again, I feel like it, it's hard to remember what I read as a kid because I think I I was... I did read Peter Pan as a kid, but it was more like my mom reading it to me at like this weird pre-language age where I just was absorbing it through osmosis or something. I don't know. And then seeing the the copy on the shelf um, in my in the guest room, and I was like, oh right, I guess my mom really did read that to me. I just maybe thought it was a fever dream, or I was thinking of the movie or something. But it was in there somewhere. Yeah. Well, we also went back and forth, like making sure that we both were reading the same thing. Yeah. Because, not the play or anything like right, that. Right. There are so many variations. So for clarification, we are reading the 1911 novelization or the novel, which is, is Peter Pan. My understanding is that it was at one point titled Peter Pan and Wendy. Yeah, or Peter and Wendy or Peter Pan. Or there's, yeah, there's a couple titles, but I think those are the two. The ebook that I read was called Peter and Wendy, but I think it's the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're not making it easy on us to like figure this out. I'll say that my association with Peter Pan was not so much with the book. I I mean, I I watched the Disney movie when I was a kid. I watched all of the Disney movies when I was a kid. It wasn't one of my favorites, although I always had a soft spot in my heart for Tinkerbell. My primary association (laughs) with Peter Pan is that yeah, I know. LOL that I love Tinkerbell now that I've well, read her in the book. Especially after reading it, you're like, oh, she's not great. She's super crazy. But I, I don't know who gave this to us or where we got it, but when my little sisters were younger, we somehow inherited a VHS tape of a stage production of the musical. It must have been in London because it was starring Kathy Rigby as Peter Pan. Um, and we watched that thing. Like, 
I don't, I couldn't tell you. I mean, and, and so much of the script of the musical must have been pulled directly from this book because as I was reading this book, like it, Oh my gosh, I knew flashbacks. Flashbacks. I knew so many of the lines. I could picture like when the musical cues came in. Then I went down like a YouTube black hole where I was just like looking for clips of of the Kathy Rigby musical, which are available and I'll be sure to include in the show notes. You grew up with a different version of the musical because I remember the um what what was the actress's name? Mary Martin was the was the actress who played Peter Pan. And that's Kind of like, I guess, the origin story of why I would even pick this as like a Pride Month book, because historically speaking, for whatever reason, they always choose like a woman to play Peter Pan to like portray this young boy. So there's like this weird gender thing going on. And I remember watching like a recording of that performance as a kid and being like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm that. (laughs) Which is like, that's not really easy to explain to your parents who are like, I'm the lady who is the fairy boy on the TV. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when you mentioned Peter Pan, I remembered watching that, and I remember having conversations with my parents where I was like, it's interesting to me that Kathy Rigby is playing Peter Pan, because I was probably like 10 or 11, and, and I remember my parents explaining to me, like, this is just how it works with Peter Pan. Like, like you said, Peter Pan just is generally played by sort of a small, petite, athletic woman on stage Um, and to that point I'd only ever seen Peter Pan as like the animated boy in Disney so it was it was interesting and so when you suggested Peter Pan I definitely like I was picking up what you were laying down thanks to that VHS that we watched so uh, many times I see the queer culture in it all yeah I'm like oh okay I'm understanding it so tell me a little bit about like what your first impressions of this book were as you began reading it because it is um as an adult yeah yeah. (laughs) well okay so I was thinking about how recently I read this and I don't think I read the whole thing as an adult but um in my children's literature class in undergrad this was before I even did my thesis or anything it kind of got me into thinking about studying children's lit in uh college and we read like passages, I think both from Peter and Wendy and another book called Peter Pan and Kensington Gardens, which I think is before yeah, Peter Pan. Yeah, that was one um, of the original. Which is sort of, um, it's something between like a prequel and a first draft in a lot of ways because it sort of has a lot of the same backstory stuff of Peter, but it has less of the Wendy stuff and it's more about him like in Kensington Gardens and the whole weird lore about how he collects these children who I think are dead possibly it's a very weird dark lore but I remember reading that in class and going oh my god I don't remember this being quite so dark and I think just reading more of it this time around it was even weirder than I expected like just those passages did not mentally prepare me for like I think in my notes I wrote the whimsy is both a strength and a curse it's like somehow like it, like it's an interesting world building but then I'm also like okay wait sometimes like even aside from all the magical stuff with Neverland there's like the weird thing with like their nanny is a dog who's also kind of like an anti-vaxxer and it's like <laughs> it's kind of this and that's just like their normal life right that's before things get actually weird yeah that's like the strangest part of this book is before you even really get into this whole magical world like the delineation of what is normal is very strange to me like even the way that they describe like oh well mothers go into children's minds and like sort through their thoughts like it's drawers and they organize things. I'm like, wait, so this is supposed to be like the normal accepted part of the book. It's yeah. There was just a lot. Yeah. I mean, the family structure is interesting. And I think that in some ways my familiarity with, I hate to keep going back to like my VHS watching days, but (laughs) that's really what I have to go on. And I think that in some ways my familiarity with that particular staging of this story 
sort of, I mean, it, it was a challenge to overcome because the way that that part of the, the story is staged in this production, it's almost like a comedy. Um, you know, the, the dad is this like distinguished gentleman, but he's also like bumbling and it's like, like a blubbering idiot. (laughs) Exactly. Like it's hilarious that he's frustrated with the dog nanny and, you know, they really play up these very heteronormative gender stereotypes. Um, and it's definitely played for laughs. And so I think that in reading this book for the first time because I was not exposed to the book when I was a kid I was very much like coming back to that sort of I don't know that sort of physical play acting of all of it in my head like I could see it so clearly and so it was almost later on when I realized how dark all of it had been because I was like oh this is this is like funny you know it can be both because I, I don't necessarily think that the intro isn't kind of slapsticky and ridiculous because it there I think there is even like a line where it says oh well Mr. Darling fancied himself like this fancy man about town or whatever but he actually was kind of like oblivious and and bad and basically getting normal things done like he sometimes he would just like couldn't like fix his tie the right way and would have to run in and get Mrs. Darling to do it and that kind of that actually was one of the few passages that I read in my children's lit class and honestly if I didn't give um credit to my children's lit teacher for like my specific thought about like the weird gender roles in this um maria sajako cesare she actually has a podcast believe it or not Shout out. called in theory um i don't know if they're still releasing episodes but she was talking about how that specific scene where like mr darling can't fix his tie but then mrs darling sort of swoops in and helps it's it's sort of like this weird dichotomy that like sets the scene for the rest of the book where like men and boys are kind of given a lot of slack as far as being unable to do things and women are like these fixers who have to come in and help like Wendy goes to this magical world and she gets to be a mom like that's (laughs) the best she can hope for is she doesn't get to like go on adventures and be a swashbuckling pirate she has to like fix socks Right. You know, well, and that's her fantasy, and I think that yeah, that's what was most interesting to me as like a cis woman. I, you know, the the signals about what a woman's role is in this book, or what a woman's role is supposed to be, it's so it's laid on so thick, really heavy handed. There's like- no room for diversion in what Wendy is like meant to do or what Wendy wants to do or what everyone around Wendy thinks she's good at or should be doing. And uh, it's like her dream to not only be a mom, but then to go be a mom in a fantastical world and to have like as many children as possible. And she like sort of makes her judgments about people and about some of the characters she meets. Like the pirates, for example, she makes her judgments on them sort of based on whether or not she would want to be their mother, which is just such a weird metric on which to like like, decide your thoughts on someone. Literally Hook, who I'm pretty sure is supposed to be a grown man. Like you see the illustrations and he's a a grown ass man and he's asking this child to be his mom. Um, also so it's sort of like this weird thing where it's like oh you're like a female figure so clearly you're a mom like you have to be a mom and take care of us all and it kind of like it makes me think of a lot of like sort of like early disney like i think of um like snow white (laughs) she has to like swoop in and like fix like the lives of the dwarves like doing all the chores for them like even though that i think she's supposed to be a teenager in that it's just there's the something about like I don't know, fairy tales with women where for whatever reason you're supposed to believe that their like greatest hope in life is to like help a bunch of men like do chores, basically. It's very strange. Yeah, and I think I mean there's there's sort of this like backstory that the author builds where we see Wendy and her brothers because she has two younger brothers, John and Michael. Um, you see them playing house when they're in their sort of pre-Neverland life, which I think is something a lot of kids relate to. I mean, I played house when I was younger. It, it's sort of natural, I think, for a lot of kids to sort of try to model the behavior that they see around them in their home. So, um, you know, you kind of want to like just try on what it feels like to be a grown-up in whatever way that sort of manifests in your life. So we see that Wendy likes to do that in her home before she meets Peter, but the whole thing just gets blown so out of proportion and she she just builds so many systems around it. And I want to make it very clear that like I don't think what either of us is saying is that yeah. that's bad. Like that's it's certainly bad, right, not. Exactly. Um, and those instincts are really healthy and wonderful and beautiful and lovely, but I think that 
what is happening with Peter Pan is that Wendy doesn't get the opportunity to be multifaceted. And even the most nurturing, maternal, loving, sort of like old school, traditional kind of mom has other interests and other aspirations. Even if you, right. Even if you grow up and like your dream is to be a mom. And I know plenty of people who like would say that that's their primary dream, you know, they're also pursuing other kinds of avenues. They're like taking care of themselves in different ways, or they're like pursuing different kinds of careers, or they're not, and they're they love to read, or they love to like watch shows. Like th- that plays into who you are too. And so I think the danger in portraying Wendy this way and sort of Wendy's like ultimate position in life as this like I don't know this all knowing mom to everyone in Neverland is that it sort of shows that like that's your best attribute? Yeah, well, I think that it's really strongly related to the language around Mrs. Darling, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not necessarily putting down women's work, so to speak, but it's sort of like laying this framework where that's the only way a woman can be. Like, the inevitability of like a mom has to not only do all these things, but she has to sort of be like this long suffering martyr who like puts up with like ungrateful children who would go off to a magical world and leave her behind. But like what makes her good is the fact that she'll have their beds waiting for them. Like there's just, there's this weird like hierarchy of like, this is what a woman is supposed to be like. That's what you, you grow up from a Wendy to a Mrs. Darling. Like that's the trajectory. Right. And then at the end, of course, there's, this cyclical nature where it's like right so it it just goes on and on like Wendy has a daughter named Jane and it seems as though Jane's probably going to follow the exact same path that Wendy and Mrs. Darling followed and yes you know we obviously have to remember that this book was written many years ago and so the author is coming from a different framework than we are now so it's sort of a given that um you know some of this is going to seem foreign to us and I think we have to look at it to some extent as a sign of progress that like we can't help but raise our eyebrows at what's going on here with Wendy and like the expectations that have been laid out for her but it, it is extreme I mean we've read a lot of books for the podcast at this point we've read some books that are from this time period or from you know thereabouts and this is definitely like a more obvious sort of portrayal of like these very strict very traditional what I find to be very problematic gender roles and I I mean I couldn't stop making notes about it I just and I I just yeah I feel like I screenshot like every single mention of just like just some weird language around like motherhood or just even just the framework within which she meets Peter is that he wants a mother or like she assumes that that's why he's crying like oh well you don't have a mother and I could be your mother and I've met little kids like that like I don't think that that's too far off base to imagine like a young kid who like enjoys playing house and really wants a baby like there even is like this sort of joke about like the underground little house that they have where all of the the kids sleep in like whatever little bunks but then there's this one cradle that's for the youngest because she needs a baby like I think that's the phrase is like she needs a baby for whatever reason and it's like this obsession with repeating this specific like domestic framework of like oh I know that you're not really a baby you're too small for this cradle but I'm gonna make you a baby not everyone can relate to that like I I cannot relate to that I think that someday I would like to be a parent, but I was not a kid that, like, was obsessed with playing with baby dolls. I'm still not somebody who is, like, naturally drawn to babies, although I'm sure I'll love my own someday. So, like, to me, the fact that this is sort of, like, the thing that you're supposed to do as we're presented it in Peter Pan, it makes me angry because I just think that (laughs) Wendy is so, like, she just lacks so much dimension and all she is is this, like, 10-year-old mom. And And I was, like, so disappointed in a way because I I thought maybe as I read on there would be something. There would be her going on some sort of adventure. But I, I noticed, like, even in, like, the climax of this book where, like, all this crazy action is happening, she's just, like, standing there. That That's all she does is she stands on the side waiting to be saved or she's watching Peter you know parry with his knife but there's never a moment where she feels the need to like actually exercise any kind of agency and 
like she can be a mom and also have agency. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She can defend herself. And it's this really strange thing where she's like, oh, I'm too, I don't know. There's this sort of like weird haughtiness to her that she's supposed to be almost like affecting this maturity. So she doesn't want to get herself dirty with, you know, the nature of the pirates. Like even when they're describing the pirates, like, oh, all the lost boys sort of found it like romantic and interesting to be a pirate. Well, she just thought it was like gross and disgusting. Yeah. Her, again, her judgment of them is like, a, based on whether or not she wants to be their mother, and B, based on, like, how dirty the ship is. Like, I think that was one of the things she, when she's captured yeah. by them, when she's talking about disliking them and being afraid, it's less about sort of, like, the terror that I personally would feel having been captured by pirates, and more about, like, they really should take better care of their space. <laughs> like, you live like this? Right, and that, I was like, really? Like, don't you have different kinds of judgments that you can exercise? Um, but yeah, I think that's true. The author makes a very clear point of being like I mean I think the paragraph is something along the lines of like Wendy wasn't actually doing anything during the fight like she was watching and making sure that everyone was okay which again is an important role but like I I actually think in the Disney version Wendy does get involved I can't remember it's been years since I watched the animated version but I do think yeah that that sounds familiar I think that's that's maybe why I was shocked she didn't kind of do anything. She didn't have a weapon. She didn't, like, there was nothing there. She she literally just functioned as this caretaker role. One thing I found interesting, which I think also kind of gets us talking about the complicated racial stuff in this book, is that Tiger Lily, who's basically the only other, like, young girl character here, um, she is violent from what I understand. Like, when they first introduce her, they say that, you know, that people were, like, what is it, like, the Braves wanted to go after her or something, but she would fight them off. So she's allowed to be aggressive, but I feel like that's in a very gross, weird racialized way where like oh well a proper white english woman wouldn't fight but like this quote-unquote savage girl would because she's like not actually a woman she's like this other thing like the descriptions of the this tribe are like so animalistic and horrible (laughs) that i just like they they're not even described as people basically yeah there's pretty gross racial stuff going on for what it's worth i remember always loving the tiger lily character in the peter pan Disney movie, and then in my go-to VHS tape, um, she had a great dance number in that musical. But yeah, I mean, when I read the way that J.M. Barry has described what he calls the Redskins, which is not, you know, the way that I would prefer it that or we describe even them. more offensively, they use the phrase piccaninny, which I did not know that they used. I don't know if they took that out of the Disney movie or I just didn't remember, but that's like straight up like a phrase people use to describe blackface. And I didn't really even know that that would be something used to describe native peoples, but it's just sort of like this weird mishmash of like, ah, well, they're like a person of color. So let's just call them this word. And that's like the name of their tribe. It's pretty horrible. Yeah. I mean, there's just no care taken in terms of like the way that this tribe is described. You know, I think now in 2020, like we would see this sort of like diversity on an island like Neverland as an opportunity to be like, oh, like, you know, you have these lost boys and you have the pirates and then you have these like indigenous people that actually can step in and like help Peter and like support some of their pursuits, which is kind of what they do. I mean, Tiger Lily does get to play the hero and she like steps in in some sort of dicey situations. But I just think that that's all obscured by the clear hatred with which J.M. Barry seems to write about them. Yeah, I don't even, the weird thing is, it's like, I don't think he thought it was hatred. And that's like, kind of what's so gross about it. There's like this weird, like noble savage archetype that they're going for. Like fetishization. Yeah, like, oh, like they can creep through the woods without making a sound. And like, like I said, it's like they're described like animals. Like they're not really given this agency or described as like individual human beings. They're like this they're of this race. Like they, he always describes like the way that they fight and the way that say hook fights has to do with like their race and like the style within which they fight has to do with that. Like it's like their racial tradition. I think he says something like that. And it's like, that's horribly crazy that you would say that. Like it's, they're just people. I don't like it somehow was like weirdly, it was like offensive because hook didn't fight in like the regimented way that he was supposed to fight. So that made him like a backstabber and then they were supposed to like follow suit. And it's, it's just this like, I don't know. It, it really bothered me. And I, I knew it was coming. Obviously I had heard 
how bad it was and I had seen the the movie and other adaptations but I just like actually reading it it was bad yeah I think you know he does sort of the worst possible thing which is as you said take away the choice and the power and the agency of each individual who identifies with each of these groups, whether it's a pirate or a lost boy or one of the darling children or one of the indigenous people that he refers to as the Redskins, and instead just like tosses their decisions in or their mistakes in as part of like a norm that that group is supposed to ascribe to. So like you said, you know, there's this whole, there are a lot of fight scenes and a lot of sort of like action scenes and people who listen to the podcast will know I'm not very good at reading fight scenes and action scenes. Like I'm the same way, which I'm, I do a Percy Jackson podcast so you can imagine my description of fight scenes I'm like uh there was a sword can we move on yeah I I was like I got lost in pretty much all of the fight scenes and I was like good thing I've seen I mean to be fair the language is kind of archaic sometimes like there's just like weird parlance that I would like never use to describe a fight scene or any scene so I understand not being able to parse what's happening yeah but the one thing that's clear is you know you were talking about how the author talks about these like specific I don't know rules that you're supposed to follow yeah (laughs) they seem like age-old rules between the pirates and and the quote-unquote redskins again when I use that word it's not my own word it's a word that's used in the book and like the idea that we're supposed to believe is that like Hook is a bad guy not because he's violent but because he like broke those norms and I'm like I don't think that's why he's a bad guy I think if you're to make the argument that he's a bad guy and I know that there's a lot of mixed feelings about that it's just because he's like a bad guy (laughs) it's not necessarily that he is like violating these age-old rules it's just because he's a little shady um in reading this it really reminded me of the discussion you had on the podcast about um the original interpretation of Oompa Loompas actually yeah it's a very similar kind of thing where it's like this sort of fictional tribe but like based in real world racial stereotypes and then you have like this exalted white person they call what do they call him in in they call peter pan like the great like the white father yeah or something and it's like you couldn't possibly be more like colonialist and imperialist than like calling the one like white main character the white father because he saved one of the people in the tribe it's just like it they're not even trying to not be offensive. No, not at all. And and that brings me to um, what some might consider a hot take, and I'm curious what you think about this. Okay. We're, we're acting as though Peter Pan is some hero to the people in Neverland. Oh, but he's horrible. He sucks. <laughs> he sucks so much. He's pretty much the worst. I mean, even the beginning of the book, or the, the beginning of when they first get to Neverland, there's sort of this description of how the, like, the, the ecosystem of Neverland runs on Peter, basically. Like, because of his need for an adventure, people are always fighting. Like, when he's not there, things are kind of chill. Everyone's just sort of like, they, I think it says, oh, like, the, the Redskins and the, the Lost Boys, they just, like, bite their thumbs at each other. They don't actually fight. Like, there's no actual conflict until Peter comes and is like, oh, let's have an adventure. Like, he's, like, this inciting character who makes everyone not get along. And I don't know if that is in the literal sense of, like, if he wasn't there, then it would just be, like, this peaceful little island with nothing happening. But it's sort of, like, this weird, like, self-fulfilling prophecy where everything is... There's a conflict because he wants one because he enjoys adventure. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone knows a Peter Pan in real life. And I'm not talking about a Peter Pan in the sense of, like, I want to be young forever. And we can talk about that part of it later. But right. when when I'm saying that everybody knows a Peter Pan, I'm just trying to, like, contextualize this for listeners who maybe don't know this Peter boy? Pan. He's a fuckboy, first of all. He tells the most annoying stories. Like, the most. they're all about him. He takes all the air out of room at a party. He goes and gets drinks for himself and does not offer to get a drink for anyone else, for sure. Um, he loves drama. Like, he's always stirring the pot and trying to pretend like he's not part of it. He definitely, like... He doesn't remember anything. No he has, bird. like, no yeah. attention span whatsoever. So you, like, you tell him something and he immediately forgets. That's, like... Obviously, that has to do with, like, the lore of how he functions and maybe the way he perceives time or something, but it certainly comes across as rude when Wendy is like, hi, and he's like, who are you? Yeah, I mean, the Peter Pan that you know in your life has met you four times and doesn't know your name. Yeah, yeah, a guy, like, you'd meet at a party, you'd be like, yeah, 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 uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, my startup. 
Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> he sucks. So, you know, I do think we think about Peter Pan mostly from Disney as this, like, symbol of not wanting to grow up and, like, being young forever. What part of that did you see in this version? Like, you know, sort of what do we see of, like, the heart of sort of, I think, the nice parts of Peter Pan? Like, what is huh. still at the core of this story? Any of it? I don't know. I mean, I think the good comes with the bad in a way because he is forever young and I kind of like that aspect of this book in that it's like, okay, the lore of Peter is that he ran away the day he was born because he didn't want to become a man. He didn't want to grow up. We don't have time to unpack all that, why an infant ran away. We just, right. we can't try to figure out how that happened, but there's just, the, the fact that he is young forever, like literally a child forever, means he's going to be inconsiderate. He's literally, like, not developed as a person. I think that has a lot to do with his character. Like, that's why he's so casually cool or, like, only concerned with the immediate. He's only, like, sort of like the id, you know, in, like, the sort of id, ego, super ego hierarchy. Like, he doesn't experience any sort of higher thought or, like, processing of emotions. He's just like, I wanted do this I want to do this and there's nothing sort of beyond that on the other hand he has like the sort of sweetness of a child too so you kind of can't hold it against him like oh yeah if a, a grown adult man acted like Peter I would be disgusted but you have to like think like oh I guess he literally never grew up and I don't exactly know what age he's supposed to be because he's supposed to seem similar in age to Wendy but as far as like intellectually or like socially he's younger than that in some ways like he just like hasn't lived in a society at all. Yeah it doesn't say exactly how old he is in the book but what I read online is that people assume he's like 11 or 12 probably Um, but also like timeless because he's been young forever. Uh, So I mean I hear you I echo everything that you said there is of course like you can play at this sort of charming part of being young forever and that's exactly what Disney did I got a lot of DMs when I posted a photo of this book from people who were like oh Disney did a number on that one Um, which is exactly (laughs) what they did I mean they pulled out the sweet parts of this book and and turned it into something that's pretty endearing but I I think that even Disney Peter though is kind of a jerk like because his whole character is supposed to be cocky which again that has to do with his like sort of weird short-sighted childish nature is he's very concerned with like himself and how he appears to other people And I think I have to keep reminding myself as I was reading it, like, oh, he's like a kid, though. Like, mentally, he's a child, and that's why he's acting this way. And I maybe shouldn't hold it against him, but, like, I just really didn't find him particularly likable, even when he was sweet. Because his sweetness often came from, like, this weird, selfish place of, like, oh, I need you for a mother. I need you for this reason. It didn't really come from any empathy or understanding of other people. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other parts of the book that, to me, were more appealing in terms of like this childlike piece of things like I I think if we're talking about pieces of the story that sort of tug my heartstrings more as far as like the magic of childhood and like the innocence of not really seeing a world in which you have grown up responsibilities it's the scene where Tinkerbell is dying and Peter Pan wants all of the children in Neverland to bring her back to life and that's played out really beautifully in a lot of adaptations of course because the actor or actress playing Peter Pan sort of like pumps up the whole crowd and is like do you believe in fairies do you believe in fairies and they all clap and it's super cute premise works a lot better as like a stage production on paper it's a little weirder to be honest because as I was reading it I was like oh here comes the Tinkerbell she's gonna die scene like I knew it was happening yeah and then like okay but who's clapping because if you're doing a stage performance of this you go do you believe in fairies and everyone claps and I remember you know like you watching a a different (laughs) chess as a child seeing them clap and clapping along like oh let's save Tinkerbell even though is she worth saving that's another question but on the paper I was like oh so he's just like doing this weird apostrophe to all children and I guess they clapped enough and then she's okay but you don't really like see it happen on the page because you're just supposed to take their word for it that the children are clapping or something and it's I don't know it just didn't really translate the same way my guess would be that because the book was based on the play yeah it probably worked super well on stage yes exactly <laughs> and Jay and Barry was like oh gotta include this um and it, you're right it doesn't work as well but I think because I had the context of seeing my good old VHS right. I like could see it play out in my head I just think I prefer that part of the story and that was the part that made me feel like oh right it is magical to be a child and like yeah. how cool to believe in fairy and to sort of have the power within you to bring metaphorical fairies back to life just by believing that in them. It's, like 
that single scene was more powerful to me than like pages of Peter Pan being like, I want to be a boy forever. Yeah. The, the most hilarious thing about all of that though, of course, is that first of all, Tinkerbell is kind of really horrible. Like she tries to murder Wendy like almost instantaneously um, as soon as they get to Neverland. And secondly, like basically as soon as, um, as Peter drops them off back at the nursery, he comes back the next year and, uh, Wendy asks about Tinkerbell and he's like, who? And she's apparently died and like off screen. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, right. I, they don't live very long. And it seems like long for them because they're small. So it's just, it's kind of this like funny exercise in futility that you're supposed to get really invested with this like clapping to save the fairy. And then at the end of the book, they're like, oh yeah, they don't really live very long and she's dead now. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, and it's peak Peter Pan as a fuck boy because he's like, oh, who? Forgot about her. Yeah, he doesn't remember Captain Hook, which I was, that was so tragic and aggravating at the same time. His, like, memory problems for some reason, like, really got me in a weird place. It seemed so, like, heartbreaking that these kids have, like, this magical adventure, and then this, like, main character that they meet there does not remember them, what happened, any of the characters. These things that seem so grand and important to them, like, are so inconsequential to them because he has, like, I don't know, an adventure every second, so his perception of reality is completely different than theirs. Yeah, that was sad because to these yeah, mortal children, the darlings, like this sort of yeah. has taken up, this is like such this romantic memory that they'll have for the rest of their lives, or at least for a long time. And Peter is like, I'm sorry, what? You were here? I forgot about you. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Tinkerbell. My main issue with Tinkerbell, although I have I have many, I think my my primary frustration was the persistent rivalry between Tinkerbell and Wendy and the yeah. fact that Tinkerbell immediately hated Wendy for absolutely no reason. You know, this is something that we talk about on the, right. It's something that we talk about on the podcast a lot, this sort of like girl on girl crime thing that I think is really overplayed in a lot of kid lit where like, especially among teenage girls or tween girls, you're just sort of like destined to have something to be jealous of in another peer or you're like, I don't know. I, I just think it's so dangerous that there are these narratives out there that like, if you are a female fairy and you see a female child, you just have to hate her. Like, but you're a fairy. Yeah, you're supposed to be nice. Like, yeah. The but hell? They're not, <laughs> fairies are apparently assholes. Um, I mean, well, there's some weird moments, by the way, about the fairies where like, I mentioned this to you before we recorded, where they're like d- describing Peter protecting the house that they built for Wendy. And they're like, oh, and the fairies were returning from an orgy. And you're like, excuse me? In this book, in this children's book, you put that? Was that necessary? But, and then that makes me think like, okay, fairies don't live a long time, but like what is age to them? How old is Tinkerbell? She has like a boudoir in his house, which is weird. And she wears like lingerie and is in love with it. There's a lot of like weird questions about age stuff where it's like Captain Hook, grown man, wants Wendy as his mom, wife, mom, wife, yeah, Peter Pan kind of her age, also kind of older than time, also kind of a baby, wants her as a mom slash white. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on because of the age and time and the way things function in this universe. I'm just like, is it creepy that Tinkerbell is obsessed with Peter Pan? It's sort of strange and possessive. I don't know. I I feel very weird about their dynamic. Um, and that's kind of her only character trait is that she's jealous and that she's cursing all the time. Yeah, you say like, yeah. straight up just cursing out children she's just angry she's angry and i i remember when i was a kid and we went to disney world and all of the other girls got like um disney princess swag like the cinderella swag or the ariel swag or the bell swag and one year i was like no i'm going to get the tinkerbell swag because she's different and i was so proud of myself and then i was like i'm going to become like the tinkerbell girl because i'm different and cool and now i'm like no tinkerbell's kind of (laughs) steeped in this like very fucked up history very fucked up. That also just reminded me that um, as a child, I was Peter Pan, which if my parents didn't know I was trans, <laughs> then just the writing was on the wall. I was Peter Pan and my twin sister was Tinkerbell. Interesting. Um, which is like, it's weird when you think about that, but it just, it was more just like us being like, we're matching characters, hooray. Um, and then this past Halloween, actually, I reprised my Halloween costume and was once again Peter Pan and my boyfriend was Hook. So Nice. Nice which couple's was the complete, costume. Yeah, 
full full circle right there. Um, I think that was more based on the book, which I originally mentioned to you when we were kind of spitballing ideas uh, for Pride, because there's um, this book, which I have yet to read, actually, called Peter Darling, which is sort of like this trans interpretation of Peter Pan, wherein Peter and Wendy are the same person and Hook is like his love interest. I'd be interested to see how that functions, particularly now that I've read the original source. Yeah, it would definitely be interesting to go back and read that. Um, I mean, I think just like the notion of relationships in this book is really interesting to consider. They're odd. odd. We've talked a lot about like Wendy being everyone's mother, but I think that like that's really the only real relationship. I even hesitate to call that a real relationship because it's this very like nominal maternal role that she's playing. Like she's not building an emotional connection with any of the people that she's mothering it's very much like I will give you medicine which is just like water and I will clean your house and I will like reprimand you when you're not being nice to your brothers there's nobody really building like emotional or social capital with each other nobody's investing and I think it's hard to figure out like what they actually want from each other like I couldn't figure out like what Peter and Wendy actually want from each other or what Peter and Tinkerbell actually want from each other because there's no relationships Yeah, I I think there's this weird thing in this universe where, I mean, they sort of talk about it where, like, especially Peter is so invested in, like, make-believe that sometimes, like, the line is very blurry where I think, I mean, you even see it in little kids sometimes where they, like, they really latch on to, like, social norms that they see acted out in front of them and then they kind of replicate that in their play and that's sort of what they're talking about here where it's like oh well this is what a mom does and this is what a dad does and sometimes you have dinner but like sometimes their dinner is real food and sometimes it's not they're just pretending to eat but he gets like so invested in the make-believe that he actually seems to get full from the food that that's not real so it's like this weird like they're already in a magical make-believe place, and yet they're still making believe. And it's it's like hard to even imagine how relationships would function because there's like this point where Peter is simultaneously pretending only sort of really Wendy is his mom, and then also she's the mom to her brothers and all the lost boys. But then Peter's also the dad, but he's then he gets freaked out that he's the dad because he's like, but dads are adults and I don't want to be an adult. This is just make-believe. And he like gets too caught up into it, I guess, because he like believes make-believe too really or something. It's this, it's so strange. I can't imagine like how you would communicate with someone who's just like not even engaging in like the reality of the make-believe world you're in. Yeah, that moment when he panics about being the dad is really interesting to me. And I remember thinking it was interesting in that movie. I'm sorry, I'm coming back to it again. Um, Because it really is this like visceral reaction that he has to like the mere notion that he's being sort of like, he feels like he's being locked into this role. And it just seems like he's not comfortable assuming any sort of identity. Like he just wants to kind of like, I don't know, he almost wants to be like a figment of his own imagination. Like he just kind of wants to be able to flit around and do whatever he wants. He doesn't necessarily want to be committed to anyone. He doesn't want to be locked into any relationship or any situation or any identity. And I I don't know. I mean, I think sort of to the opposite of like what we talked about with Wendy, if I was going to give credit to that part of it, it at least indicates that like it's okay to sort of say or to sort of bristle at the suggestion that like just because you're a young boy who is part of this make-believe role-playing family like you should feel comfortable being a dad or like being a man I think in some ways he's kind of performing the opposite that Wendy is which is that she's just like oh this is of course who I am like I will naturally assume this role and he's he's pushing against it maybe too hard in a way that like feels awkward but it's healthy that he's questioning it I guess in some ways you could say that that's healthy but I think like in contrast to the Wendy thing it kind of just feeds into this idea that like oh of course like women want to be like maternal but like boys don't always want to be paternal and that's like not required of them in some ways Mm. even like the description of Mr. Darling in the beginning he's like not that great of a dad and it's sort of like oh well we'll let that pass because like the real importance is in the mother like the mother is the staple of the family she's the person who holds everyone together she's the one who's organized and takes care of everyone and so I just I feel like that's almost just 
like replicating that rhetoric of like, oh yeah, well it, it doesn't matter that he doesn't want to be the dad because like they have a mom and that's most important. Like they don't show up at the darling's house and go, we need a dad. No, they don't even seem to care about a dad at all. Yeah. They don't really care about the dad. The dad is at least in Wendy's household is kind of like, as we said at the beginning of this episode, like the bumbling fool who, you know, every, every yeah. time he does something right or at the end he, we find that he's like really misses the children and he's like really dramatically like sleeping in the sleeping dog in the Maddie's that part really kennel. cracked me up honestly because it was it sort of just drived home just how absurd and silly he was and like obsessed with like the perception of other people at first it seems that he's doing the selfless thing like metaphorically like oh I'm gonna sleep in the kennel because I feel bad for what I did to Nana it's like this whole convoluted performance art that he's doing about his (laughs) children leaving. Um, But then people see him and like start to find out the quote unquote personal reason he's doing it. And then he becomes like this hero and he's sort of like basking in the glory of that. And then at a certain point he's like, Oh, well, you know, it's, it's a a struggle to do this. And then like Mrs. Darling calls him out and goes, well, is it though? Or it seems like you're enjoying all this (laughs) positive attention. And even that too, like it's, it's so funny that they portray their dad that way but mrs darling doesn't seem like she would ever do anything like that she's always endlessly like selfless she's always waiting by the window for her children when he like very flippantly goes oh close the window there's a draft which is like so hilarious because he's in the midst of doing this weird performance art inside of the cave (laughs) where he's saying he misses his kids and yet he's closing the window to hopefully where the kids would enter so it's it's kind of like the contrast of like this performative parental role where he just wants to seem like he's a good dad as opposed to mrs darling who's actually a good mom yeah he's very self-indulgent with his emotions about his children yeah he's so dramatic he even like i if i'm understanding it correctly he like sort of wore the kennel to work like yeah like he (laughs) it doesn't quite make sense does someone carry him and he's like in the He's in a cab in a kennel, yeah. and then people stop, like, <laughs> fangirls, like, want a picture with him. He's, like, an internet celebrity. It's just so weird. Right, but the bar is set so low for him at the beginning that I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so cute that he misses his kids. <laughs> I heard it's cute, and then, like, I, I kind of was really satisfied that Mrs. Darling is like, wait a second, you like this. You like that you're getting all this attention. You also kind of don't really give a shit of the kids' return. Like, you probably don't even really care. It's more like his guilt. Like, he feels bad that he did that and made the kids leave, but I don't think he's like oh no Wendy I miss her like as if he was taking care of them the mom was hardly taking care of them to be fair they had like a maid and a a nanny and a dog who was a nanny and that's (laughs) I don't know why that makes sense but it does yeah I mean I I do think your point about like the lower standard for the dads in this world is a good one I also I, I actually just thought of this um but I in the play I remember or in the musical I remember there being or at least in the staging there was this parallel drawn between Hook and the dad like I think yes. there's this implication that Hook is in Neverland sort of like the manifestation of Mr. Darling in Wendy, Michael, and John's real world. And I didn't pick up on that as much in the book, but I'm wondering about your thoughts. We haven't really covered Hook much. I think we should chat about him for a few minutes. Yeah. And since we're talking about the dad, we can sort of compare. The actor who plays Mr. Darling plays Hook. That's like most adaptations, most like whatever voice actors who do one do the other. Mm -hmm. And I don't, there's like some sort of weird representation of a, paternal figure happening there but it's like really hard to parse exactly what that means because I feel like there might be a meaning there and I I don't know if that's just because it's like in stage versions that's just like the choice that they make but it's like harder to pick up on that when you're obviously reading a novel where you're not like looking at actors who are chosen and cast I don't know it's I guess he's a complicated guy hook because he's a pirate which is sort of supposed to represent this like you know, swashbuckling, like, 'er ne'er-do-well section of the population. But then at the same time, he's supposed to be, like, this really fussy guy who is probably from, like, a good school and a good family. Like, they don't exactly name where he's from, but I I feel like they're, they're, like, alluding to some sort of, like, aristocratic, like, upper-crust British society thing. I think if I actually were British, I might be able to be like, oh, he's from one of these public schools or whatever yeah. that, that it's confusing because I think in England public school is like fancy and private school isn't which is like the reverse in America but that's another thing 
Yeah, I mean, I think if I had to draw a parallel between Hook and the dad in the book where we can't visualize, you know, the actors that would be cast to play them, it's this sense of, like, standing up to form, which is something that we hear about very explicitly with respect to Hook because for Hook, it's very important to, like, do things properly. And to, to your point, Bryce, it sort of goes back to, like, his upper crust upbringing and he has certain expectations and standards that he's trying to uphold for himself all the time. And I think we get a little bit of that from Mr. Darling in the beginning of the book where, like, it kind of seems like he and his wife are struggling a lot in their early marriage. Like, they didn't have a lot of money um, and they had to work really hard, but it was very important to him to be perceived a certain way. And that's why they hired the maid and that's why they hired the nanny, but the only nanny that they could afford was a dog. <laughs> Oh, uh-huh. um, so I think like you know if if we're to sort of pull pieces of that from the book where there's like a parallel between the two that's that's sort of what I would pick at but Hook is an interesting character and um, I found a lot of interesting literature about Peter Pan which I'll include in the show notes for this episode but we had so much to say about it on our own that I didn't even <laughs> need to refer to it but there's a lot in there about how it's pretty easy to turn Peter Pan on its head and make Peter Pan the character the villain and and Hook the hero and how you know in some of the original imaginings Peter Pan was actually the villain um, and Wendy was added in to make Peter Pan more likable and more engaging and then they added in Hook to sort of create a more clear villain so there's all kinds of arguments to be made about like who is the good guy and the bad guy but Hook is complicated in a way that you don't see in the adaptations I had trouble hating him in this book I think he's extremely misguided I think he (laughs) loves to be a leader like he's assembled this band of followers who really have latched on to him and I think Hook's very afraid Like, he's clearly very afraid of having his power taken away from him. And that's clearly not, like, a healthy attribute. But I feel like he has such a backstory. And I guess that's why the movie Hook was made. Like, there's all of this other, like, Hook lore. But I I didn't have, like, super strong feelings about him in the book version. I mean, he still is a villain, obviously. He does some pretty violent, horrible things. He tries to drown (laughs) Tiger Lily, you know. The book is very violent, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the violence we didn't even really get into. But there's, like, moments where they'll straight up describe like murdering people I think there's a line where where Peter says something like oh I kill them and then I forget them so it's like they're they're pretty dismissive of a lot of the violence but Hook is is fascinating because he I don't know he's so obsessed with like perception but he's also a pirate so it's like this weird like this like tension between like wanting to be like this proper person but also like you can't be that if you're a pirate and I I don't necessarily feel like he's any worse than Peter he's kind of just doing the same thing like he's fighting people and killing people and sort of like living out this whole ecosystem of the Neverland universe where it's like oh the Redskins fight the pirates the pirates fight the Redskins the pirates fight the Lost Boy like it's just this sort of never-ending cycle and it's not necessarily like one is more aggressive than the other I don't know it's like he I found it interesting that what he really hated about Peter was how cocky he was and I, I think it came from like this this lack of confidence that he had like he sees this like little boy who feels so confident and he's like I guess this grown man which I don't exactly know why there are some grown men in Neverland but not others but I I don't even know how that works but yeah in some ways that's also why I hate Peter so I kind of related to him I was like yeah he is like a little shit like he's going around like with his like little smug look on with his little knife and he forgets he just keeps bringing new girls here and forgetting them. Like, I don't know. I don't necessarily feel like he's any better. Yeah, I think you captured it really well. I, I understand the tension. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like a little bit more about Hook would have been interesting. And the violence, I will I will echo what you said. The violence in this book is quite shocking. And in a lot of ways, this book does not read to me like a kid's book. I mean, the writing is quite beautiful and sort of, very highbrow and advanced so I think if anything it's meant maybe to be read aloud to children but yeah I can't see it as like a kid's book I don't I don't think this is something that like a child would enjoy or understand or even necessarily be able to read unless they were at like a very high reading level I definitely I think I I mentioned to you that I was read it as a child Um, and that makes sense to me because it's it's not something I would have sat down and gone I can parse these like really long words and like weird archaic phrases but it's it's sort of meta in a way that it's a book that you would read to children because the sort of premise of this entire story is that there's 
Peter is in himself a story you read to children, like the sort of myth that is then brought to life, which I guess is supposed to like immerse the child in this idea that like, oh, then they too are children sitting in their bed in pajamas next to the window, hoping that Peter Pan will come and whisk them away. But as I'm reading this as an adult, I'm like, I would never want to be whisked away in Neverland. I don't want to meet Peter. I don't want to meet any of the pirates. You could just keep it. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good here. I don't think I would want to read this <laughs> to a kid. So You've listened to SSR for a long time now. You know what's coming. You know the big question. Um, And because we are celebrating Pride Month, I would encourage you to maybe look at this question through the lens of of Pride Month and of identity and gender identity and sexuality and all of those things. On coming back to Peter Pan as an adult, how do you think it holds up? Especially you have all these experiences with the book when you were a kid, and now I know that you were also into the uh, VHS of a musical adaptation. Um, How does it compare? compare? How does it hold up? So the thing is, I did find it really beautiful and moving at certain parts. And I feel like we've just been really ribbing into it because it truly is like a bizarre fever dream. And you read it and you're like, this is fucking insane. But there's were parts where I legitimately got emotional. And maybe I don't know if I'm just like, nostalgic or like missing my mom right now or something but like the ending where they're just like describing this endless cycle of you know the kids growing up and Peter forgetting but then then meeting the new daughter and there it, there was something sort of like poignant and sad about that so I don't know I I do think that it's worth reading I think that there should be a framework within which you read it. If you're an adult, it probably would be helpful to like, I don't know, look into the backstory of it and maybe understand some of the strange, like racial and colonial and sexist implications of the things that are in there. Or even if you're reading it out loud to a kid, I don't even know if they would pick up on some of the weird crap that's in there. But I certainly would like open that conversation up like hey why do you think that they're talking about the redskins like this or whatever like I wouldn't I wouldn't just sort of like read that like it's a normal thing to a child and then just let it lay I it requires some elaboration as far as like maybe it's not good to talk about people that way you know so I don't know I think overall it's like worth reading but holds up is like sort of a phrase because it's certainly I don't think it's even my place to be like yep it holds up it's worth it because like so much of it is like offensive to people who aren't even me so yeah well and as far as a framework I we don't this this is a whole other podcast but the his J.M. Barry's history is pretty fascinating and sort of like the things that influenced him to write this book are pretty interesting and I found a lot of info about that so I'm going to include links to all of those stories in the show notes for this episode and I would encourage listeners to check that out and I think now that you've listened to us rail about it for an hour um, go ahead and read the book because I think having a better sense of like what you're getting into will allow you to sort of look past these issues that we've covered and maybe find the emotional moments that Bryce is talking about because they're definitely there I had some of them as well other than Peter Pan what have you been reading lately Bryce that you would recommend to our listeners as this episode is releasing into the world it's the beginning of summer Although, uh, side note, as we record it, we are still in early April quarantine. So I think you and I should just maybe just imagine what it might be like in June. What would you maybe want to be reading in June? What do you think our listeners would want to be reading in June? Well, I unfortunately have not really been digging into my to-be-read pile in ways I had hoped during quarantine. But I have basically, as of this week, wrapped up uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. So that entire series, which I cover on my podcast, at a glacial pace of one chapter a week. But we are finally like wrapping that up this week. Um, and I would definitely like recommend that series. I know that that's on your to-be-read, actually, for this month, which is kind of a funny coincidence that I happen to be on your podcast not for that book that I have an entire podcast about. But yeah, I definitely would recommend that series. Um, I'm kind of looking forward to reading other Rick Riordan stuff, though I can't personally vouch for it because I know that it has some queer representation that I'm looking forward to. Um, But as far as stuff I have read, yeah, Percy Jackson, Olympians, especially, I mean, honestly, the last Olympian, the last book, I've I've really enjoyed, um, but you know you kind of have to read the, 
the other ones to get there. Yeah. Yeah, we do actually have, um, later this month, as you're tuning in listeners, uh, the episode about the lightning thief is also part of Pride Month, and I've never read it, so I'm excited to get to that. And also, Bryce, congratulations on getting through that whole series on your podcast. I said this to you on social media, but a chapter, an episode is really what I should have done, because I think that it's glacial, but more manageable. good and bad qualities to both, because I've done both. For Unfortunate Associates, we did a book a week for all of the like main 13 books and that was differently difficult because then we had to get guests who were willing to like read an entire book and also an entire book that was in a series so they Mm. had to have read all the other ones before and that was the whole thing but then the other hand is like reading a chapter a week I want to read ahead, but I'm not allowed to because, like, the premise is that I don't know what's going to happen next, and I have to guess. So I'm sort of kept in the dark. I don't. I can't even look at our own podcast email. Uh, my co-host Zach like lords over it and like literally redacts things, like the CIA when he sends me emails, so I don't see any spoilers. So it's like some rigid stuff going on. Wow, so many roles. Well, you do have some awesome podcasts. I'm going to include links to both of them in the show notes for this episode, listeners. I would encourage you to check them out. Bryce, it has been. Such a pleasure having you on yeah, for this. Yeah, coming. Thank I know. You for having me on. Yeah, I feel like we probably could have gone on about this for another three hours. Um, but yeah, this was a lot, a lot of fun. To unpack. <laughs> a lot to unpack and some great book banter. Um, and I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.